On March 2nd, one day after the first confirmed case of coronavirus in New York City, Governor Andrew Cuomo held a press conference. We have the best healthcare system in the world here. And uh, excuse our arrogance as New Yorkers. I speak for the mayor also on this one. We think we have the best healthcare system on the planet right here in New York. Cuomo was getting at an idea that the system would work. Because of New York's public health establishment, the state wouldn't struggle to fight the virus like other places had. So uh, when you're saying what happened in other countries versus what happened here, we don't even think it's going to be as bad as it was in other countries. What followed this March 2nd press conference was the most harrowing public health crisis New York has seen in a century. To date, more than 20,000 people in New York City have died from coronavirus. That's one out of six deaths in the entire country. Our colleague Shalini Ramachandran has been working over the past months to answer a question. What went so wrong? But people didn't die only from the coronavirus, but because we couldn't get to them in time, or there weren't enough people to help them, or there wasn't enough equipment to help them. Some people died because of a lot of things that could have been avoided. Shalini and her colleagues talked to nearly 90 frontline healthcare workers, hospital administrators, and government officials. They reviewed emails, legal documents, and memos to understand the missed warning signs and subsequent chaos that many healthcare workers say led to unnecessary deaths. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Tuesday, June 23rd. Coming up on the show, how the response to coronavirus in New York City fell short, and what other cities and states can learn as their own numbers rise. This episode is brought to you by Natrol. Natrol is America's number one drug-free sleep aid brand, helping you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Natrol melatonin gummies are made with clean ingredients, like 99% pure melatonin, to work with your sleep cycle, helping you sleep better, making the next day your best day. Natrol. Sleep tonight. Live tomorrow. Shop now at Natrol.com. This product helps with occasional sleeplessness. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent diseases. The first coronavirus case in the U.S. was reported in Washington state in January. But around two months later, when the virus officially spread to New York, officials were reluctant to shut down the biggest city in the country. New York reported its first coronavirus case on March 1st. And the day after that, Mayor Bill de Blasio tweeted that people can go see a movie, go on with their lives. A day later... Governor Cuomo said at that press conference that the state's healthcare system was the best in the country and was ready to confront the coronavirus. But as cases in New York grew and Cuomo declared a state of emergency, the actions of New York's leaders started to splinter. And that was especially clear in deciding when to shut down. So the politics involved are that Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio have a long, contentious history. And during those crucial days when people were 
trying to figure out whether New York City should be locked down or not, they were often at odds with each other. I mean, one example of this is Mayor de Blasio said the city might go under a shelter-in-place order, which Governor Andrew Cuomo then dismissed. And being constantly at odds with each other helped sow the confusion. So what was the turning point for New York leaders to stop waiting? When did it become clear that things were taking a turn for the worse? So that was March 13th when it became clear that there was community spread from one man in a New York City suburb. And at that point, the city realized we're, we're not planning for a crisis a few months from now. We're responding to one already here. And just for comparison, in early March, at the same time period, New York was feeling like they were well prepared. Other American cities and states were taking action. Yeah, and here's where the difference really shows. New York was remaining open even as its caseload was skyrocketing past where others were. So, for instance, California issued a statewide lockdown with 1,005 cases on March 19th, while New York remained open with 5,704 cases. And that's according to updated Johns Hopkins data. Spokespeople for the city and state said they did everything they could once the risk of COVID became clear. The de Blasio spokeswoman said that, quote, ultimately, our hospitals withstood the pressure and our doctors and nurses delivered heroically. The crisis in New York only got worse as the virus spread out of control. So it was becoming clear that New York City's caseload was spiking in a way that other places weren't. And it also started to become clear around March 20th when the ICUs of certain Queens hospitals were just starting to overflow. And doctors were saying, I haven't seen anything like this in all my time in ICU care. Two days later, Cuomo put into effect a statewide shelter-in-place order. And in the weeks that followed, that chaos in the Queen's ICUs would hit more hospitals around the city, testing the health system at a scale it had never seen before, with a disease that the world was still trying to understand. As New York shifted into emergency mode, Cuomo ordered hospitals to increase capacity by 50 percent. But hospital executives were quick to point out that more space wasn't their most pressing concern. Hospital executives said increasing beds isn't the problem. We got to have the trained staff who can take care of these people because it's not just any doctor or any nurse who can do something like this. They have to be trained in critical care. Respiratory therapists are the masters at mechanical ventilation, and there's only a limited number at each hospital. What were the consequences of having too few staff in hospitals? The main consequence was that there was a lack of patient care, and there was just so many patients there that they couldn't possibly give them adequate care. In some examples that we saw and reported on, one is just simply unattended deaths. People dying because they were just kind of lost in the system when one doctor had to oversee dozens of patients. And there's just no possible way they would be able to get to everybody. According to emails and interviews with healthcare workers, in one operating room ICU at New York Presbyterian Columbia, respiratory therapists at times cared for over 80 patients a shift. A normal level is about 10 patients a shift. 
The staffers there were overworked and they weren't able to suction mucus out of the patient's lungs often enough, which resulted in patient complications. And there's also just lack of patient care that normally would happen in an ICU. You know, intubated patients' lips were bleeding. They developed sores on their backs from not being turned often enough. And the staffing shortages were so acute that, you know, one respiratory therapist at Elmhurst estimated that with more staffing and better equipment, they could have saved 30 to 40 percent of COVID patients who died there. In response to Shalini's reporting, the city's public hospital system that includes Elmhurst and Bellevue said the system, quote, mobilized quickly to shift staff and equipment to the hardest hit hospitals. And New York Presbyterian defended its response to, quote, unprecedented challenges. Staffing shortages also led to other problems. There are several cases we heard about of people sort of getting lost in the system and dying without anyone's knowing. And in one case at Brookdale University Hospital Medical Center, this is in Brooklyn, a family member called the ER to inquire about their mother in her 80s. And the ER doctor looked them up and realized that she had died two days prior. And he was saying that this is happening daily. When you spoke with this Brookdale doctor, how did he say he felt? He was really upset. Doctors and nurses and the respiratory therapists, all these healthcare workers I talked to were just devastated that they couldn't give the care that they felt these patients needed. And it was emotionally just breaking them to have to talk to these family members and say, look, I'm sorry, your mom died two days ago. We don't know where she is. A Brookdale spokesman said the hospital staff, quote, did their absolute best to provide care to those in need during this pandemic. And what did the hospitals say about these staffing shortages and the lack of care that they caused? So the hospitals typically said that they were trying to secure staffing earlier in February, January, and they said that they ultimately did bring in thousands of additional staff. And they basically were saying, once we knew this was upon us, we tried our best to bring in people as fast as possible and try to train them. But they reiterated this was a crisis. This was something that, you know, wasn't foreseen. The shortages wrought by coronavirus didn't stop at staffing. In fact, the shortage that got the most attention during the peak of the outbreak was ventilators. But it turns out assumptions about the importance of ventilators to treat the virus were mistaken. More on that after the break. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing carefully, consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company. 
Welcome back. With cases surging in New York City, hospitals ran out of ventilators, and they had to borrow from state and federal stockpiles. The stockpile ventilators doled out by the state, which came from both the state stockpile and the federal government, those were antiquated. They lacked the functionality needed to treat these patients, is what the healthcare workers said. They're at times faulty and led to patient complications like lung collapses, mucus plugs that cause you to sort of deoxygenate, and casualties. This was a big surprise to many of the doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists who I talked to. For example, one respiratory therapist at New York Presbyterian Lower Manhattan said that he documented 50 patients who died due to these inadequate state stockpile ventilators and due to improper ventilator settings by untrained staff. Did the hospital dispute this? New York Presbyterian said that the hospital received no such reports about ventilator malfunctions. But the public system said that any state ventilators were not ready to go and that the system had to do additional maintenance before they could be used on patients. What did the state say? The state said that they tested every ventilator before sending them to hospitals and received no complaints about faulty ventilators. There was another problem that came up in the race to secure ventilators. Doctors figured out that ventilators weren't actually helping most patients recover. So initially, doctors across New York City were ventilating patients early because of the focus from leaders from the medical community on ventilators. And what people started to realize is that Most patients on ventilators were dying. They weren't getting off the ventilators. And many of the doctors across the hospital system said, we have to try to get these people better without putting them on a ventilator. Instead of ventilators, doctors started relying on another treatment, putting patients on oxygen. But this treatment required monitoring patients' oxygen levels. And many healthcare workers said the lack of staffing and needed equipment made that an especially dangerous task. Just imagine a hospital crowded with people and with thin staff. You need monitors to be able to tell people, this person's crashing, this person needs help, but they just weren't there. This situation especially came up because of how some patients can react to oxygen masks when they can't get enough oxygen. When you're on supplemental oxygen and you have these masks on, at the point when you deoxygenate and you feel like you can't breathe, at that point, some of these patients, it's reflex, they rip off their mask. They do it without knowing because they're in an altered mental state. And at that point, a healthcare worker needs to know that this person might be crashing. But if they don't know, they just die. We have reporting from at least eight New York City hospitals where doctors and nurses told us patients who were gasping for breath and weren't being properly monitored as they lay hooked up to oxygen died without anyone's knowing. One Elmhurst doctor told me that they personally knew of 10 such deaths, including one of a man in his 60s who had been improving up to that point. A spokeswoman for the public system said it had enough monitors to track patients continuously. Another major problem with New York's response was the issue of patient transfers. Hospitals in the city were overwhelmed with the number of COVID patients coming in each day. But some hospitals, depending on their neighborhood or their funding, were more strained than others. There were 
pockets of New York City that were starting to get harder hit than others. For instance, Queens and the Bronx, where there are low-income, diverse communities, they were getting really hard hit. And what hospitals at that point needed to do was transfer patients from those hospitals to places where they could be helped because those hospitals were getting overloaded. In regular times, there's a system and protocol for how to transfer patients from one hospital to another. But because of the chaos during the peak of the pandemic, that system needed more government assistance to make it run. This led to another squabble between the de Blasio and Cuomo administrations. City officials told us that they had wanted to set up a centralized evacuation hub that was previously used in emergencies like Superstorm Sandy, which would have helped transfer patients between private and public hospital systems and among them. And they said that twice the state denied the request. A spokeswoman for the state said the city's centralized evacuation hub wasn't designed for individual patient transfers. So the state created its own system for that purpose. But the state's program had problems. It could tell you when a bed was available, and it would supervise the transfer of a patient. But it didn't supervise the transfer of medical records so doctors would know what to do when that patient arrived. The lack of coordination meant that hospitals on their own, and really it was doctors in the moment on their own, trying to figure out what to do with these patients, flooding the ERs, you know, sending them out to another hospital. And oftentimes patients would arrive with one foot in the grave, according to the doctors and nurses we talked to. And we heard several examples of patients arriving at Bellevue's ER transferred from other hospitals, dying soon after they arrived. And is that because they were so sick? What went wrong there? It seems like what went wrong was that patients who were super critically ill, who normally wouldn't be transferred, were transferred in this crisis. And the problem was that they were too unstable to be transferred, and they would arrive without names or medical information. So the doctors at the receiving hospital didn't even know, has this person had these treatments? What are their names? The public hospitals said that only the least sick patients were transferred, and their personal information was in a centralized system. And state officials said their transfer system ultimately helped save lives. New York City's hospitals have largely emerged from the crisis at this point. At the peak, there were over 6,000 cases a day in the city. Now, they're just a few hundred, a number that's manageable for the city's hospitals. But with all of its missteps, New York was also the first place in the country to deal with an outbreak of this magnitude, which means there's also a lot to be learned from its mistakes. There are several states right now that are undergoing a surge, and hopefully they don't get to where New York was. But given that it did happen here, and given that the outbreak spread so fast, There are a lot of lessons to take away from how leaders dealt with it, how hospital administrators tailored their response in the moment, and also just how people can better prepare, how cities, states, and hospital administrators and frontline workers can better prepare. That's all for today. Tuesday, June 23rd. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting from Laura Cusisto and Katie Honan. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.